it's easy in the summer to get distracted with uh, things we got going on on the weekend, and maybe some of us didn't sleep too well last night because it was so hot, and we don't have AC. I slept great. We, we have a basement, so everything was nice and cool. Um, but I wanted to, in order to tune our hearts and to quiet our hearts for, for the Word and for, uh, for praising God this morning, uh, please listen with me as I read Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my King and God, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of your glory, of, the, of your kingdom, and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them food in their due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Well, as you're taking your seats, if you could also open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 14. We're continuing our study through the gospel according to Mark, looking at who Jesus is and the life that he has called his disciples to live. We just came out of Mark 11, 1 through 11, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, riding in on a colt. People hail him as Messiah. Blessed is, is Hosanna. Blessed is the coming king of our father, David. Jesus showing us again and again that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one, the expected one, the Christ. He is the long-awaited king come to establish his perfect kingdom that is no longer under sin and self. And the passage we're looking at this morning is right after that. Uh, it says, on the following day where Jesus had entered the temple, end of verse 11, he comes into the temple as God. He goes out and retreats to Bethany the next day. They're coming from Bethany. It says he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. The difficult passage is a sobering passage, one that it has 
uh, kind of destroyed me this week, has burdened me this week uh, for the message I'm about to share with you. It might be a little confusing at first. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure if some of you guys suffer from this symptom called hanger, where you get so hungry that you get really angry and it leads you to, to grumpiness, to maybe irrationality. How many of you guys would say that you wrestle with hanger? If your hand's not raised, you're lying, yeah. <laughs> so it says the next day, he's coming out from Bethany. It says Jesus was hungry. He goes up to this fig tree. sees from distance. He sees a fig tree. He just has leaves on it. He goes up to it, but he finds no fruit. There's no fruit on this tree. And it is. It's almost as if he was hangry. He curses it. He says, may no one eat fruit from you again. Later on, we'll see in the, in later in, in chapter 11, that the, the fig tree withers and dies. Jesus curses this tree. And it's a difficult passage because Mark says it's not the season for figs. So was Jesus just so hangry that he was kind of causing him to be irrational? Like, this fig tree should be producing fruit, even though it's not the season for figs. This, this time frame here is, is, is the Passover festival. This is, in fact, what Jesus is, is going to celebrate. This is why the pilgrims were going to Jerusalem around this time to celebrate the Passover festival. Passover normally happened in April. Sometimes it could happen in March and May, but it normally happened in April. But fig trees didn't produce fruit until June to about uh, late fall. So when Jesus comes to this fig tree, he's, it's two to three months before it would produce figs, and yet Jesus curses it for not producing fruit. Some have said, well, Jesus, not a farmer. He, maybe he's, he's angry, acting irrationally here, cursing this tree, poor tree. Does he have these horrible expectations that because Jesus is approaching it, that it should be ready two to three months before the rest of the fig trees are ready? When Mark includes this phrase, it was not the season for figs, it was not to show that Jesus had bad expectations or was hungry and angry and acted irrationally, but to tell us to look for something, to cue us in to look for something. Jesus is trying to show us something here. And there is symbolism. This fig tree is very symbolic. In the Old Testament, the fig tree served as a symbol for Israel. And prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel would use this fig tree as, as symbols for Israel, for uh, divine judgment. So this is what's going down here. This fig tree represents Israel. And like the fig tree, Israel looked good from far off, but as Jesus came to it was fruitless, was barren. Like a fig tree whose purpose is to produce fruit, Israel had a purpose. They had a calling. They, were, they had a design. And they were proving themselves fruitless. Now, the people of Israel were, were called, they were chosen by God with a purpose. I've said this before, but just like the Israelites, the, the church was chosen by God. They're, they're not like, they're a chosen people, they're not a choice people. They weren't chosen because they were somehow better or, you know, the premium Angus choice beef that's better than the rest of the beef. 
They're a chosen people. They had a purpose. The purpose, God called the Israelites to worship the one true God. Glorify, worship the one true God. Love this God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. All of your words, your works, your affections are supposed to honor and glorify this God. But the Jews proved themselves, the Israelites proved themselves to be a faithless, disobedient people. They had turned from a love of God to a love of self. They had turned from the word of God to using it and twisting it for their own good. This is, in fact, what Jesus rebukes the Israelites in, in doing. They had twisted the law for their own ends. They were uh, allowing divorce. They were, not, they were neglecting the poor and the orphan and the widow. And this is what Jesus says to the Israelites in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. Well did the Israelites prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their worship is vain, it's empty, it's meaningless. So the people that God called to love him had turned from the love of God to an empty belief, to lip service, to hypocrisy, to self-righteousness. Instead of reflecting the God in, in, in love and in grace, in generosity, they had become, they had failed in representing God. The Israelites were called to be a blessing to the nations. They were called to serve as a nation of priests so that people and nations could come and experience and encounter the one true God through them, through their devotion, through uh, their love for God. They were to represent God and serve as, as a witness to God for the nations. And Jesus curses them. See, in, in our outline, the first point I think we get from this passage is that Jesus curses what is fruitless. That is a principle that we see. One of the ways practically this curse plays out is in the destruction of the temple, the center of the Jewish thought, religion, culture, destroyed 30 to 40 years after Jesus cursed the, this tree representing the Israelites. Jesus curses what is fruitless. Now, this is sobering, right? It's not the most popular topic, our verse, our passage. Right? We just looked at Mark 11, 1 through 11, where Jesus comes in and he's the Messiah King and he's going to right every wrong. And people are worshiping him and, and surrendering to him and, and, and loving him and praising him. Yes, Jesus, right every wrong, forgive sins, establish your everlasting kingdom. And we like to hear that, don't we? Yes, Jesus, come, establish your kingdom, forgive us, right every wrong, conquer sin and Satan, restore creation to how it was intended, to flourishing. But this whole idea of cursing and judgment is not something I don't think we, is something I think we don't like to hear that often. The sobering passage, Jesus cursing a fig tree is not an image that comes to many when they think about Jesus. Think about Jesus, you think about him holding the little lambs, right? hugging the children, and these are great images. But Jesus also, he curses this fig tree. For some of us right now, that might make us really uncomfortable. Like, this doesn't seem like the nice, tender Jesus that all the pictures portray and I, I heard about in Sunday school. Jesus curses? As a church, we need to have a robust view of Jesus. 
We can't have a weak view of Jesus, a weak view in which only highlights certain aspects of his character. We can't have a Jesus that uh, we try to shape and change because we don't like some of the things that he says. We have to come to the Jesus of the scriptures. We can't adopt a view of Jesus and change him to make him more like us because that's what we're more comfortable with. We can't change Jesus' challenges that we don't like to hear. I think this is especially true of us as American Christians, especially maybe Northwest American Christians. This is not very a, a popular thing when you're talking about Christianity. Jesus is judge, right? especially in our culture, right? We glorify, we highlight tolerance. Therefore, anything that's judgmental that might appear like you're judging me is like judged, you know, that inconsistency, inconsistency of tolerance. <laughs> you can be intolerant in your view of tolerance. I mean, it... anyways, uh, this thought might make us uncomfortable, but Jesus is not only the Messiah King, but he's also the judge. Not a judge, the judge. Not a jury. Can't go and like testify and make our defense. Jesus is judge. And just as he judges the Israelites in this moment, Jesus will judge the world. It's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we, all, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for, the, recompensed for his deeds in the body or according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Acts 10.42, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge. What's even more sobering is, is not only is Israel cursed in this moment, but in fact all of creation is cursed. All of creation is, is under a curse. We all are like this fig tree designed to produce fruit but are not obedient to our very design. We are fruitless. This is what humanity is. We are, we're cursed. And ironically, this, we are fruitless because our first parents, the first humanity, decided to eat fruit. <laughs> the imagery of fruit goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity when the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, ate fruit that they were not supposed to. God created uh, the world and, and as a paradise, as perfection, as, as a garden, a place of total flourishing. Everything was good. A place of complete and perfect rest. God created two people, Adam and Eve, made in his image to glorify him, reflect his character. God tells them in Genesis 1.28, I'm going to bless you and then go forth and multiply, be fruitful. But Genesis chapter 3, they're, they're deceived. They're deceived to believe that something else is, is better than God. They're deceived to believe that something is more desirable than God and they ate of this fruit that was that they were led and led to believe that would make them like God, make them better than God. They ate of the one fruit they were not to eat. And this desire, this preference for anything other than God is, is called sin. And when this entered the world, when this sin entered the world, perfection was broken. Perfection was lost. Therefore, the perfect relationship that, that humanity enjoyed with God was severed. The perfect relationship that we enjoyed with one another was severed. The perfect relationship we might could say enjoyed with ourselves severed severed. 
the perfect relationship between creation and humanity severed. This is why we experience things like blame shifting and abuse and murder and guilt and fear and shame and depression and anxiety and racism and suffering and death. These are all a result of sin. This is why in the world there's, there's natural disasters, there's famines, there's diseases. The world does not function as it is intended to. It's cursed, all because of sin. But the gospel is, not only are we, are we cursed, is there a curse, but that God came to reverse the curse. God doesn't just curse us, he becomes a curse. This is the gospel. This is what Paul writes to the church in Galatia. Galatians 3.3, Christ redeemed us from the curse. He did this by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is what Jesus does. He doesn't just curse us. He comes as a curse. He redeems us from the curse. He took the punishment, the curse upon himself, as he goes and suffers and dies on the cross, and he's hanging there. He is taking the curse on himself. He is becoming a curse. And as he dies, he is in the grave, and on the third day, he raised, he's raised from the grave. He's showing that he is overcoming the power of the curse, that death no longer has any power. He has redeemed and reconciled all things to himself. Jesus did this showing that he is the restorer. He is the redeemer. This is what he's doing right now. He's reconciling, redeeming all things to himself. Jesus is restoring humanity to its original purpose so that disciples, the followers who trust in his life, death, and resurrection, who trust that he has broken the curse, have the curse broken over their life. And through this, Jesus produces fruit in his disciples and sons and daughters through faith. This is what happens. As, as we hear this truth about Jesus, as the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit uses that and brings faith and repentance. It's a miracle that the Bible describes as the new birth, regeneration, where we are uh, forgiven, we are justified, we are made new so that we can produce fruit, so that we can satisfy, so we can be satisfied in God, so that we can please God, so that we can obey God. This is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We cannot break the curse. We need Jesus to break the curse. So salvation is by faith through grace. Uh, Salvation is by grace through faith, meaning that we don't do anything. We, we, we have faith, we trust, we believe that Jesus has done everything. He has broken the curse. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus has done it all. That's what salvation is. But we can't forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is where I think we can get kind of two big main misunderstandings about fruit, good works. Uh, one is 
that they save us. There's a, there's a tendency, there's a tendency in myself, there's a tendency in you, this default mode, that we switch to uh, a salvation that is by our good works, that we switch to a religious heart in which we get this um, self-righteousness, this kind of entitlement in which we, we subtly think, okay, Jesus, because I obeyed you, you owe me. Okay, Jesus, because I obey you so well, I am superior to all these other losers who don't. We feel like we start to then deserve salvation, that we've somehow earned it. That's one wrong view, good works for that we that, that saves us. The other is that they don't matter. This is a, a more dangerous view. This is a view I think some of us in this room even have right now. Because salvation is not by our works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved by Jesus' good works. But we are saved for good works. Good works are not an optional part of salvation. They are proof that genuine salvation has happened. There's not this kind of mindset in which you can be saved, but then you can go this long period of time thinking, okay, uh, I'll, I'll obey God later. I don't have to obey all of God's commands. So, genuine salvation, you will produce fruit. That's, that's what the Bible says. In fact, Jesus' own brother James said, faith without works is dead, meaning it's not there. Meaning if your life isn't producing good works, do you have faith? A tree that doesn't produce fruit is not a tree that's full of life. It's a dead tree. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke 3.9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those passages might, they should challenge us. Like, there's a weightiness to that. Do we feel that? Disciples called by Jesus, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, will produce fruit. It's just, it's going to happen. Like thunder follows lightning, it's just going to happen. Some of these fruit, as, as I'm thinking about this, if you're familiar with the scriptures, if you grew up in church, you might be thinking about Galatians 5, that famous passage, the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's always interesting there that, that the word is, is fruit, not fruits. Meaning, when you're controlled by the Spirit, all of these things will happen, will accompany you. You just get to pick and choose which fruits you like. Which fruits more fit your personality? Well, I'm not really a patient person, so. I'm not really a self-controlled person. I'm not really a gentle person. I'm not really a loving person. Jesus desires that fruit. Meaning, when you are growing in your faith, when the gospel is changing you, these things will, will grow in you. 
You, will, you should be growing as a, as a disciple, as a Christian, as the gospel is transforming you, you should be growing in your patience. You should be growing in your peace. You should be growing in your joy. You should be growing in your kindness, in your goodness, in your faithfulness, in your generative self-control. Other good works that the Bible talks about is loving others, loving your enemies, serving those, being deeply committed to the good of those around you, encouraging others, being generous with others, sharing your time, your energy, your resources with one another, being hospitable, opening up your home, having people into your house, welcoming strangers, being committed to mercy and justice, taking care of the orphans and the widows and the homeless and the abused and the refugees and the imprisoned and the unborn. Disciples called by Jesus, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, will produce fruit. You know, my initial plan in, in talking about this was, in fact, to go through Mark 11, 12 through 25. But as you can see, that didn't happen. I tried to keep studying through the rest of what Mark was laying out there, and I couldn't do it. Because I kept thinking about this, these, fir- these three verses. The weight began to bring pressing more and more on me. Are we like this fig tree? Do we look good from far off, but if Jesus came close, would he find any fruit? God, am I like this fig tree? Do I have the facade of leaves and no fruit? Show me where I am missing it. Cut off the dead limbs. Create in me a new desire for the things of you. Create in me a desire for you that will produce fruit. Nourish me in prayer and your word. Bring others around me that will call me out on those dead limbs that will cut those off. Bring others around me that will nourish me to produce fruit. Do we have this mentality? Father, I want to produce fruit. I want to be fruitful. I want to be so full that my branches are just hanging to the ground. Make me fruitful, Father. Do we have that? Because I'm, I'm worried and I'm convinced that there are many professing Christians that are just like this fig tree. There are many of us right here in this room. Maybe you. Don't look around and think about all the people that you can think about that aren't producing fruit. Look into your own heart. Do you look good from far away, but when you get up close, you realize there's no fruit? I'm going to be a little heavy now and, and for the next, I don't know how however long this is going to take. Because I love you. I, I genuinely love you guys. I don't want you to live a life that is fruitless. I don't want you to stand before Jesus and be shocked because you are, are not rewarded for your faithfulness. Sometimes people can fall into such a heavy sleep that you need to splash them and throw cold water in them. And I'm worried that some of us in this room have been sleepy for too long. Sometimes you yell at your kids, not because you hate them, not because you're, you're angry at them, but because they're doing something that is very dangerous. Running into the street. Touching a hot stove. Jamming a fork into a socket. Friends, I don't want us to be deceived.
I think this is why some of you are so reserved and private, because you want to keep people away. You want people just to see your leaves. You're not really vulnerable. You're not really committed to each other. You're not really committed to each other in gospel community. You don't really share about what really is going on in your life. You're not committed to every aspect of the gospel community. The serve days, the study days, the play days. As leaders, we, we see what happens when, when these things are, are being fulfilled, when there's a, not a commitment in these areas. They reveal things about our hearts, about the heart of the church. If you just gather for study days and that service to you is not really that big of a deal, that's a, that's a problem. When we continue to have play nights and we're having parties to bring in the lost, to share the gospel um, as a community, and continually there is people aren't being brought in, that is a problem. God has placed me as, as your shepherd, as your pastor, to, to, to shepherd your soul. And I'm not being loving, I'm not being your pastor if I'm not calling you out on things that you are doing wrong. That is, that is dangerous. Not loving you if I'm not exposing sin in your heart that, that you, are being, you are deceived, friend. Because Jesus will, is holding what he has given you. He's, you're being held accountable to Jesus. Romans 2, 6 through 8, he will render to each one according to his works. You are held accountable to Jesus for what he has given you. Time, energy, talent, resources. You are going to give an account of what he has given you one day. And I don't want us to live fruitless lives. I don't want us to go through the Christian faith 50 years. And we read a passage or we get convicted and the word of God is revealed to us. And we think, man, I've missed it. 50 years, what have I done? Like I'm young, I'm 25. I can look back and think, what have I been doing? I've wasted it. Instead of investing time in the kingdom, I've spent it or wasted it. Instead of investing resources in kingdom, I've spent them on myself or wasted them. I want you to live a life deeply committed to Jesus and his gospel for God's glory and for your joy and the joy of those that you impact. Fruitless life is not something that it's like we, we need to do that as some sort of like duty or our obligation. It's like the best life. Jesus says, I've come to be, give life to the full. I think we're missing it. Remember that this life is a mist. It is a vapor. That 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, however long Jesus gives you on this earth is nothing compared to a thousand. Compared to a million. Compared to a billion compared to a zillion. That's a word, I think. Right, Nate? A zillion? A lot of billions. <laughs> and what we do in this life, it matters. It has eternal consequences. Shouldn't we live lives that are for eternity? Our purpose is to glorify God and magnify God, to devote ourselves to the King and His purposes. But one of the ways that this overflows into bearing fruit and multiplying. 
when God created humanity, he said, go forth and be fruitful and multiply. And when Jesus redeems humanity and restores humanity, he gives us the same command. Listen to what Jesus says as, as he, uh, his final command to his disciples after he is raised from the grave before his ascension into heaven. He says in Matthew 28, verses, starting in verse 18, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. Not primarily like the first command in, in procreation, but in multiplying the gospel, in proclaiming the gospel, in magnifying Jesus and multiplying disciples of him. Take the gospel and magnify it and multiply it. We are to see and savor Jesus and share him. We are to bear the fruit of the gospel and share the gospel so that others, it might bear fruit in the lives of others. And trust me, friends, there's enough Jesus to go around. There really is. Jesus is not just a little personal pan pizza that is just for us. You can share Jesus with everyone. It's like the infinite pizza, like family size to the max. In thinking about good works that we are to produce and the fruit that we produce, as I was thinking about this, um, I think the greatest, the greatest work we can do with the biggest impact is sharing the gospel. Isn't it? It's great that we want to feed the homeless and, and serve the homeless. It's great that we want to take care of the orphan and the widow and, and, and clothe the naked. But what good is if we hand a beggar bread and they go to hell just a little more full than they were on earth? And I think as a church, we're, we're missing this in sharing the gospel. I think we are missing it in actively, intentionally pursuing and engaging lostness, in actively, intentionally pursuing befriending lost people, in actively, intentionally, and consistently sharing the gospel. As a whole, I think the church, as a church, the mountain church, we are missing this. I think we're missing the mark in sharing the gospel in word and work, in pursuing lost people, especially meeting new people, in opening up our homes for serving neighbors, our other brothers and sisters in Christ. I had a call to our church at the beginning of this year to share the gospel 10 times to, to have that be our goal. How is that going? Are you sharing the gospel? As disciples, we should be. We should be actively, intentionally pursuing the lost people. We should be making friends with lost people to share the gospel with them. Not because it's a guilt and an obligation, a duty, and I need to do this because Daniel says so, but because this is what the gospel will do in our life. This is the fruit that the gospel is to bear in our life. Is Jesus on the forefront of our minds and thoughts? Because I think we're fooling ourselves if we say we love Jesus and we never talk about him. Or we never talk to him. I mean, you wouldn't do this with your best friend or your wife or your spouse or your kids, your parents. The reality is we talk to who we love and we talk about what we love. I would say if you don't, the degree to which you share the gospel is to the degree which you love the gospel. If you don't serve others to show the gospel, you don't love the gospel. 
The scriptures talk about us as ambassadors, as representatives, as missionaries. We are to talk about Jesus. Everything in our life should be representing him, should be showing him to the world. Practically what this means is that we should be looking for every opportunity to do this. Every opportunity. This is my goal as I meet new people and I talk to people. How quickly can I share the gospel with them? Do we have this mentality as we're talking with others, as we're going to the grocery store, as we're talking with coworkers, as we're talking with our neighbors? Will and I have been talking a lot about this, and, and I think um, in our desire to befriend the lost, in pursuing people, and in, in, in coming alongside them, but it does no good if we're not sharing the gospel. Like an illustration that I thought of is, is uh, you know, the, these lost friends that we have, our, our city is, is like a walking off a cliff. And at some point, they're going to go off. And it, it does no good for us to come alongside them, right? We put our, our arm around them and we befriend them. We, we have them into our home. We support them. We encourage them. We do fun things with them but then we don't tell them about the cliff they're about to walk off of. And we just kind of walk with them along until we don't know when they're going to when they're going to walk off the edge. We don't know when they're going to die. Do you love someone if you don't want to share the gospel with them? You can't say if, if they died after you befriended them for a year and a half for 2 years. Well, Jesus, I at least I was their friend. Right now, personally, do you feel, do you call, do you feel the call, the weight, the responsibility that God has entrusted you with representing him, with serving as his ambassador, as his missionary, as a disciple? Do you believe missionaries are those people who sell their homes and move to China? Or do you believe that those are people who are simply called to do that in China? And I'm a missionary called to share the gospel in Des Moines, in Kent, in Federal Way, in Burien. Was the reason you bought your house, your condo, or you rented your apartment because you liked the neighborhood, because it had a good school district? Was it because you liked that house better than you, the ones you put an offer on? Or was it because you, your desire, your intent was to use that house for the glory of God? Were you called to that area to be a witness of Jesus Christ in? Do you have hobbies that you have selected simply because you enjoy them or because you, you want to invite others into them to share the gospel with them? These are questions that we have to be asking. These are questions that we have to have as ambassadors. And one of the reasons I feel so burdened about this is because largely I think the church has failed in equipping disciples to do this. Churches don't know how to make disciples. Now, I don't want you guys to hear me to say that, well, you bought your house for the wrong reason, you got your job for the wrong reason, you have a hobby for the wrong reason. So you need to stop doing that. Sell your house, quit your job, do something radical. Maybe you need to do that. I don't know. But primarily what that means is don't sell your house because you bought it for the wrong reason, but learn. Have the mentality, the mindset. Listen to me in that you are to use it as a, a sent disciple of Jesus to be a witness through it. The Mountain Church was not planned to be an att attractional or program-based church. Our plan is not primarily to advance the gospel through programs or creating a polished production on our Sunday gathering that people are drawn in by our, our great music or our great preaching or our, our smoke and light shows. 
Our plan, our philosophy is to equip you, to encourage you to be a disciple, to advance the gospel through the faithful witness of you. And we're a team in this. What I think can easily happen is that we can become uh, a lot like Safeco Field or a concert or some sort of sporting event. This is a great illustration that sadly represents a lot of the church. Is that you go to Safeco Field, you go to CenturyLink Field to watch a Sounder game or a Seahawk game or you go to a concert and what happens is there's a large crowd that's gathered and they're all watching a few people do the work. I was just at a, the Mariner game last week and I was just thinking about this very thing. There's thousands of people gathered in this great stadium watching nine people, ten people do the work, play. And that is not what the scriptures teach. We are a team. We're, we're, we all have a part in this. It's not just pastors. It's not just leaders. It's not just those crazy missionaries that are supposed to live like this. It's all of us. Some of this is really radical to you because the gospel has been so watered down for some of you. You are called. You are a, called to be a sent missionary wherever you are to, to be a witness to Jesus Christ. And, and we do this, number one, I think, in, in just kind of our daily rhythms. Going to work. Hanging out with coworkers, Getting gas. Going to the grocery store. Picking up the trash. You can be a witness in these daily rhythms. But we also need to be a witness in intentional, purposeful, what I could call tactical pursuits. And it might be helpful for us to think about what, what kind of things do missionaries do if this is completely foreign for some of you. What do missionaries do? How, are, how do missionaries function in their mission field? First thing is they do is they pray about where God has called them. Where is God calling us? And for many of us, that's very simple. Right where you are. <laughs> He's called you. He's placed you right where you are. If you're not called to China, you're called to Des Moines. You're called to Kent. You're called to Federal Way. That's where he has put you. Step one, check, okay? Second, get a house. Identify a place of the center of ministry where you're going to be training others, equipping others, showing the gospel, having people into your home, creating a hub of ministry in your house. I don't think, um, I don't think any of you guys are homeless, Check. We have that. Third, what do we need to do? We need to learn the language and the customs. Most of us are born and raised very close to here, if not a couple thousand miles away, but you can learn the cultures cl close enough. Right, Carrie? <clears throat> okay, we call, check. And here's, what, here's the next point. Start meeting people and sharing the gospel. Where do you meet people? You, you can identify some of the, the places people gather. In Des Moines, that's, that's pretty easy. Restaurants, the biggest one probably, farmer's market, right? The marina. Where do the majority of people in Des Moines gather? There's a large gathering there. Where do the majority of people gather in your city? If you live in Federal Way, if you live in Kent, if you live in Burien, where do people gather? 
This is what we start doing. As a missionary, we go down to the farmer's market. We might even bring another couple, a disciple family with us with the mentality that I'm going to meet someone new. I'm going to make a friend. I'm going to share the gospel. Have you ever done this? Do we have this mentality? I'm going right now to make a friend, to meet someone new, to share the gospel with them. Other things we can do in missionaries is we can wait and kind of creepily spy on our neighbors, like when they go get the garbage and when they go get their mail, to happily do that at the same time so that you can befriend them, pursue them, get to know them, and the goal of sharing the gospel with them. Have any of you guys ever done this? Some of my neighbors probably think I'm pretty weird for every time they go to the garbage can. I just happen to be going there at the same time. (laughs) Tactical, Angela. (laughs) There's other ideas, and I hope now that the Holy Spirit is, is giving you certain things that you can be doing. If, if you have a hobby of camping or fishing or boating, it doesn't mean that you don't have a hobby. You just use that hobby to share the gospel. Do we live with that mindset, that mentality? As a missionary, we're to leverage our, our homes for ministry. Open up your home to your church, your neighborhood, your coworkers. Let your house be the center of the gospel ministry. And right now, I fear that many of us are even right now, we're making excuses. There's always an excuse that can be made. Man, I've heard a lot recently. I'm just in a busy season of life. Well, we've got young kids. We don't have a lot of money right now. We've got too many house projects. Well, we don't have a big home. Or I'm too busy with schoolwork. My husband works late. I have a weird work shift. I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to reveal opportunities. This is kind of a side note, but um, I don't know what our our mentality is on this. But in in my sharing of the gospel, I have never had the Holy Spirit say, Daniel, yoo-hoo, this person needs the gospel. And he tells me their name and what I should say. That doesn't happen. If you think that's going to happen, that's why you're waiting doing it wrong. (laughs) You've adopted a a poor theology. It's not the Holy Spirit's job. He's not a preacher. He uses the words that you say to transform lives. We can't have this mentality of, oh, I'm just going to wait for the Holy Spirit to show me this, this, oh, this is the moment where you share the gospel. The light comes down, everything kind of focuses in, everything kind of becomes really blurry. Your, Your vision gets sucked on this one person. Share the gospel with him. That's not how it works in my life. I look at Des Moines and I think everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. My my clerk at the grocery store needs the gospel. My neighbor needs the gospel. This is how I I prepare sermons too. I, I don't kind of just sit here and wait, oh, Holy Spirit, give me the words to say because I would never preach on a Sunday. You guys would come every week and Will would just sing, and, and then we'd be done. I trust that as thoughts come to mind, as I study commentaries, as I read through and pray on the text, I write those out. And I hope that God uses what I say and empowers that. 
I don't know what the Holy Spirit's using right now. I don't know right now if, well, this is what I'm saying right now. The Holy Spirit told me to say that. I don't know that. Man. But that doesn't mean that I'm not called to speak. It doesn't mean that I'm not called to share. There is always an excuse. Don't use the Holy Spirit for your laziness. Because the reality is, friends, the days keep passing by and the laws keep passing away. If Jesus is real, if he is all-satisfying, if he is the bread of life, if hell is real, if a choice is demanded, there has to be urgency. There has to be boldness in gospel proclamation. What are you not believing in that? Can you imagine if, if all of us bought in on this right now? Can you imagine what would happen? I think it would be something that we'd probably never, none of us have ever experienced. Not just a bunch of people coming to hear uh, the gospel proclaimed by a pastor and people get saved, but people getting saved through our proclaiming of the gospel in normal rhythms of life. Can you imagine if we all bought in on that? Can you imagine the, the lives that would be impacted can you imagine if we abandoned the trivial pursuits and pursued Jesus and the lost with the rest of our life on this short life that we have on earth? Can you imagine what would happen? I dream about that. I pray for that. That's the goal. Luke 10:2. And he, referring to Jesus, says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's a lot of lost around us, guys. We live in a strategic place. People don't know the gospel. People might have grown up in church. They might think they know what Christianity is about. They don't know the gospel. Every time I've shared the gospel with someone this year, it's always been, wow, if that's what Christianity is really about, I think I might be interested in that. They think that Christianity is this, this dead uh, religion that's full of hypocrites and uh, the self-righteous. They don't know the gospel. It's awesome. It's not like, I don't, th I don't think the majority of people have like heard it and rejected it. They just haven't heard it. They don't know it. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, God has called us to be laborers. God is calling us to go out into the harvest. Let's do it. You don't need to wait around. You don't need to keep making excuses. We're going to end uh, with a silent communion and with a time of reflection. There's um, some space here if you want to kind of write out some action steps as uh, through the, the message, if you feel like God is pressing certain things on you and you want to write these things out, if you want to use this as a time to repent of your self-centeredness, your unfaithfulness, you're just like a tree that's not producing fruit, 
And um, I'd, I'd want us to think about this and feel this. I don't want to just hear this message and, just, and go out into our day and, and it just slips our mind and we, same week, we're not doing the, the things that we're supposed to be doing. So what we're going to do now is, is the table's going to be open. There's not going to be anyone up here that's going to serve. And you just come to the table at your own pace. Don't, you don't need to rush up here. There's a lot of crackers there. The cup is pretty full. Spend time thinking about where God has called you to, who has called you to, who you're sharing the gospel with, who you're reaching out to, who you're pursuing, and why aren't you if you're not? Spend some time reflecting and meditating on that and and confessing sin, repenting. For some, that might be a little awkward as we sit here in silence, but I hope that the weight of this sits in with our church. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the reality that you build your church. Jesus, there's nothing that's frustrating you. There's nothing that uh, you're caught off by. Father, I pray that we would be humbled by the reality that you decide, that you ordained, that you have planned to build your church through the faithful witness and proclamation of your people. I pray, Lord, that that there is a a miracle that's done in our hearts, that we would bear fruit by your power and your grace. Father, I pray now that you would convict those who are missing it. You would convict me as I'm missing it. You convict our church as we're missing this. That we would be a church that shares the gospel in boldness, that we're looking for every opportunity, that the goal or the The thought of our mind is to glorify you and to magnify and multiply the gospel. Would now be a time of reflection and repentance and confession of sin, uh, but would ultimately, Father, encourage and strengthen. Father, would we live lives in which there is no regrets and lives in which we look forward to the reward that is coming in, in heaven. Father, I, I ask and I pray that you would make us a fruitful church, that, that the kingdom would, and, and the city would be impacted based on your, you working through us. Father, would you break our hearts for the loss of people right now that are, that are dying and going to hell because they don't know the gospel, they haven't heard the gospel. Would you send us? Would you break us? Would you multiply us and... Uh, Would you encourage us and equip us to be the disciples that you have called us to be? I ask this in in your name. Amen. So we'll have a time of reflection now, and uh, when the time seems right, I'll, I'll end us in a closing prayer.